Welcome to the Living Rock Podcast. We're so glad that you're joining us to listen to this message. Whoever you are and wherever you're listening from, we trust that you'll be equipped, envisioned and encouraged as you listen today. Praise God. Lord, I just pray this morning as we come to, into your word, Lord, above all things, Lord, I pray that we will see Jesus afresh. Lord, we need you more than we've ever needed you before, Lord, and we want you more than ever before. Lord, I pray that you will not be limited by my natural limitations, but Lord, by your spirit, you'd speak into our hearts in the name of Jesus. Amen. Praise God. Well, look, over the last few months, I found things really exciting here because I believe God is showing us new things, and that's always exciting. Um, Over the last few months, the Lord's been speaking to us about coming into the presence of God, about coming around his throne, and about what happens when we come together, when we ascend the hill of the Lord, when we come into the throne room, whatever picture uh, you want to use, but approaching the Lord in all his glory. And when we do that, we can expect every time that it's a place for us of revelation, that God will reveal new things about himself, about you, about us, about the world. And in that revelation, there'll be a transformation in the way that we think about everything, in all those things. And then in that place of worship, that's a place where God commissions us and sends us out into the world because we've been equipped with a message of hope to take out to the world that needs to hear it. So that should be our expectation every time we come together. Everything we need is found in the presence of God. And that's why it's so important, folks, that we come together. As Sarah encouraged us at the beginning, that's why it's so good to come together, that we approach the Lord together, because everything we need is found in the presence of God. So we should be hungering and longing for the presence of God more than anything else in our lives. And today what I want to talk about and share about is... God's promise, rest. God's promise, rest. Something for us to discover in the presence of God is God's promise, rest. So if you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3, hoping that maybe some folks will already be familiar with this um, section of the scripture, but it talks about God's promise, rest. So I'm going to read um, chapter 3, verse 7. We're going to read through into chapter 4, verse 11. I'm just going to wait for the wrestling to die down. I'm going to be reading from the ESV. And we're going to pick up in verse 7. So Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another... Every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Do you know, it's more important to know what God says rather than where he said it. This writer didn't know where God had said about the seventh day, but the substance is more important than where it is in the word. For those of you that can't remember where stuff is in the word, just an encouragement. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter into it, And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he points a certain day today, saying through David so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that none may fall by the same sort of disobedience. I realize that's a huge passage of scripture and there's lots of detail in there, but don't worry, we're going to unpack it. So, what this passage is about is the writer is talking about a rest of God that his people are invited to join him in. And he goes back and he looks through the scriptures to draw on those to illustrate the point. He talks about the people of Israel coming out of Egypt and being led to a promised land. But more than a promised land, God was leading them to a promised rest. In other words, not just a geographical place, but a state of being. And we've just read that Joshua, although he was able to lead them to the promised land, Moses couldn't, but Joshua did. Although they made it to the promised land, they never really made it to the promised rest. And that's why David could say, about 500 years later, today there remains a promised rest for the people of God. So I want to just start by defining what we mean by a promised rest. This is a short definition a place of total trust and reliance upon God for our past, 
our present and our future. That's all-encompassing, isn't it? A place of total trust and reliance upon God for your past, your present, and your future. And God's rest is something we can discover in his presence together. And what I want to look at today is three things. I want to look at how it impacts on your past, how it impacts on your present, and how it will impact on your future. Does that sound good? Excellent. So let's start with the past. So if we go back to where we started in verse 7 of chapter 3, this is what the writer to the Hebrews does. He refers us back to the past. And in actual fact, he refers us back to a section of Psalm 95. Now, I want to encourage you, when you're reading the New Testament, the writers in the New Testament drew upon the Old Testament scriptures. And it can be easy just to read a little bit that they've quoted and think, well, that's enough. But let me encourage you to go back and find the passage that they were quoting from. Because as so often was the trend of the day was to quote in part something that you were inferring from in full. In other words, you're expected to be familiar with the passage that's being quoted. So when you're in the scriptures, go back and find it. In the bottom of your Bibles, it will probably tell you the bit of the scripture from the Old Testament that's being quoted. In this part, it's telling me it's Psalm 95. So let's go to Psalm 95 and see what David said and the context in which he said it all of which is really important for us. So in Psalm 95, in my Bible, it's headed up, let us sing songs of praise. Let us sing songs of praise. This is a psalm, unsurprisingly, about worship. But there's a really serious message in the psalm for us. And that's why the writer to the Hebrews has brought it to us. Let's start in verse 6. He says, oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation, a bit strong, and said they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. There's that refrain that the writer to the Hebrews keeps throwing at us. They shall not enter my rest. Don't let that be you. That's what the writer to the Hebrews is warning us about. Now, David here is referring to something that we may know not what it is. He's given us a clue. He said, at Meribah and Massah. Guess what? He's quoting from something that happened earlier. So let's go and find it. Let's go to Exodus 17. You didn't know this was going to be a treasure hunt this morning, did you? But every time you're in the Word, it can be a treasure hunt, folks. Lots of different paths to take. So in Exodus 17, we have the account of the people of Israel coming to a place And in that place, finding themselves really thirsty. Who can identify with that this morning? I've had loads of water this morning already. They came to a place in the wilderness and they found themselves really thirsty. Starting at verse 1, it says, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? 
Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children, our livestock, with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa, which means testing, and Meribah, which means quarreling, uh, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? So this is what the writer to the Hebrews is referring back to when he refers back to David. This incident and what happened. And the first thing, here we go, that I want to say about the past is that to find God's promised rest means acceptance of the past. Acceptance of the past. That might sound quite simple, but it is anything but easy to do except in God's promised rest. But it is absolutely crucial for each one of us to do that. See, the problem that the people of Israel had that David lamented was the fact that they were stuck in their past. Their past had become a prison for them. And in fact, in the the scriptures that we've just read, the first thing to notice is that this place that they came to was Rephidim. That's the name of the place. Do you know what that means? It means a resting place. They came to a place of rest. But it wasn't a place of rest for them. It became a place where they tested God instead. And they said, if God is really with us, then you do something about this. They weren't trusting him. They were saying, if he's real, then he can do something about this. It was a place for them to be tested in their faith, but instead they were testing God to see if he was real or not. And if he was really with them, And this is the crucial part, is that when they go to Moses and they complain about this, they say, why did you bring us out of Egypt in order to kill us in the desert? So they were looking back at their past, and they were saying, God has brought us from a place only to die here. But that's not what God had said he would do at all. In fact, if you just go back 10 chapters to Exodus 7... The purpose is clear, is that Moses was given this instruction, let my my people go, that they may worship me in the wilderness. In other words, God had said, I will take you into the wilderness, and it will be a place of worship for you. It will be a place where you will rest, because you'll be completely reliant upon me. But what the Israelites had done was they'd looked at their past, and they had misremembered their past. And this is the dangerous thing about the past. David says, though they had seen my work. What was he talking about? He's talking about all the miracles that happened. And that's why God said to Moses, take the staff. You know the one that you struck the river with? You know the one that you marched into Pharaoh's throne room with? Take that staff. And as you hold it up, you'll remind the people of Israel, this is what I did to bring you here. This is the reality of your history. And this is the promise I made that I would bring you to this place to worship me in the desert and I will sustain you. But the Israelites had forgotten all of that. 
And the problem is that sometimes we look back on our past and we see things that happened and we misjudge God's motives in what he did in the past. We look back at the things that happened and we view our own history with bias. In other words, we've got our version of what went down. And in that version, often we question what God was doing. When this happened to me, what was God doing? Where was God? What were God's motives? And the trouble is, if we look back and misjudge his past motives, we can't trust his present intentions for us. And so the past becomes a prison for us today. This is really a tragic thing, and it happens so often and to so many of us. And I speak from experience in this, that you look back on your past, and the problem is, is that you look back on the past and you've got lingering questions about why things happened in a certain way. Legitimate questions. But in those questions, you start to question God. You start to question whether he was really for you. You start to question why he let you go through something. And you start to question where his provision was. And then you start to question how he really feels about you. And it can be something that grows inside you, but it can become a prison for you. Because if you don't trust his past motives, you won't, press, you won't trust his present intentions. So in order to move on from that and to find rest, you have to accept, first and foremost, that the past is exactly that. Guess what? It's the past. It's gone. It's finished now. There's no undoing it and there's no rewriting it. The past is gone. It is what was. And we need to be people that move on. If we don't, we will always be second-guessing God here in the present. And that's where Israel was, second-guessing God. So to do that, you know what? It requires a sacrifice. It requires you to lay down those questions. It requires you to lay down those doubts and say, although they were legitimate questions, they are not helpful to me, and I'm going to lay them down. That's a, a true sacrifice. But guess what? It enables God to do something wonderful in us because it enables renewal within us. In Isaiah 43, it says this, Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. That's wonderful, isn't it? It puts me in mind of Psalm 84 where it says, those who are in a place of worship in the throne room, they go through a valley of Baca, which means weeping, but it turns into a place of springs. That the very thing that brings us pain from our past, the very thing that can be a barrenness for us, can become a place of productivity and a spring of joy if we lay down the past. Proverbs 3, 5 says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. See, the problem is we have an understanding of our past, don't we? We've got our own history, our own autobiography that we've written. And God's got a part to play in it, but it's the part that we've written for him. It's the narrative that we've made. It's like, what's that saying that the, um, the victors in war get to write the history? We get to write our own history, but that's not always helpful to us. But the Proverbs is saying, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not 
on your own understanding. Well, guess what? We can't lean on our own understanding of the past sometimes because we've misjudged God's part in it, and we have to trust him. Otherwise, the past will become a prison for our, for our thoughts. If we don't lay it down, we'll always second-guess God, whether he really has our best intentions at heart, whether he'll really come through for us or not. And like Israel, when a moment of crisis comes, that's the point when you find out you don't really trust him. Not as much as you thought you did. You see, it's only when the crises come along that you really find out how much you trust the Lord. It's tough, isn't it? But that's why we have to deal with these things now, not in a moment of crisis. In a moment of crisis is not the time to be dealing with trust issues. It's now, before the crisis. And then when the crisis comes, you know that you trust him. And that's why it's really important for us. And if we don't do that... If we fail to lay hold of God's grace, because that's what we're talking about, we come to a throne of grace, and it says that we lay hold of the grace of God in all circumstances. If we don't do that, then there's a warning for us. In Hebrews 12, you don't need to turn to it, but later on in the book of Hebrews 12 and verse 15, it says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. If we don't deal with those feelings about the past, guess what? Something else will spring up. And it'll be a root of bitterness about how things went down. And potentially about what you think God's actions were, what his intentions were, and his motives in everything that happened to us. So it's really important. There's a great example for us in Psalm 73. We don't have time to turn to it, but it's one of my favorite psalms. It's so real because the psalmist, Asaph, he says the first half of the psalm, he's talking about everything that had been going on in his life. He looked back at his past and he sees other people are doing really, really well. And he looks at himself and says, look, I've kept myself righteous, but it's done me no good at all. All these people are living exactly the way they want to. And then he gets to a point where you just think, man, this guy's in a really bad place. And then he says, if I had spoken thus. So he's thinking it, but he didn't speak it. He said, if I had spoken thus, then those thoughts would have overwhelmed me. And in verse 16, he says this, when I tried to understand all this, all of my history and all the things that happened, when I tried to understand it, it troubled me deeply. This guy had real issues with his past. The ESV says it was a wearisome task. You know, it can be that way when you think about the past. You can get tied up in it. And then he says some wonderful words. He says, until I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. In other words, until he ascended the hill of the Lord and came into God's presence, and in the presence of God, God said, Asaph, I'm going to open your eyes so that you see more fully what really went on, what was going on around you spiritually, and what will happen in future. And that was a point of release for him. He laid it down. So that's the first thing, that finding God's rest starts with acceptance of the past. And you know, even as I'm speaking, I know that the Holy Spirit is bringing things to mind for some of you in this room. And I just pray right now, Lord. Lord, we want to be people who don't want to skirt over things. But Lord, we want you to deal with things. We want to be those people who 
You're able to do heart surgery on, Lord. And I pray, Spirit of God, that you will bring to mind anything that we are holding on to, each of us, Lord, whether it be a disappointment, whether it be something that we're angry about, whether it's something that we're hurt about, Lord. Just bring those things to mind right now and allow us, Lord, to deal with them. And if those things are already in your heart, just make a decision now. I'm going to lay them down. It takes just a moment. I'm going to lay them down. And you're going to find a renewal. You're going to find something springing up that's new and green and full of joy. And you're going to be released in it. The second thing is, finding God's promised rest means contentment in the present. So if we go back to Hebrews... Hebrews chapter 3. So the first thing that the writer has done is referred us to the past. Then he brings us up to the present in this next section he's talking about right now. In uh, chapter 4 verse 1 he says, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. There is still a promise of entering God's rest. And later further down in, in verse 7 he talks about David and he says... Today, saying through David so long afterwards, today. In other words, there's a certain day you can enter into God's rest. And guess what that day is? It's today. It's ever today. Today is the day that the Lord has made. And today is the day when you can enter into the rest of God. It's a daily activity. It's not a one-off event. It's a place to live in today, to dwell in the present Joshua was able to lead the people of Israel into the promised land, but not into the promised rest. It's possible to come into the house of God, but not be at rest. Did you know that? I'm sure you've experienced that. All of us have at one time or another. To be here, but to be troubled. But that's not God's will for us. God's will is for us to find the present rest in the present moment. And it's something we can live in every day. And it's something that's found in the throne room. In the presence of God is where you will find his rest from anything that troubles you today. The wonderful thing is God describes this as my rest. He says they shall not enter my rest. My rest. It belongs to him. It's his rest. And then we find that the writer to the Hebrews says, okay, what does that mean? I'll tell you what it means. He says it means that God rested on the seventh day and that's his rest. And that's the rest we're being called into. Just turn with me to Genesis 2. Because again, in Hebrews, we're quoted a part of the Old Testament. It's really good to go and find it, folks. Let your fingers do the walking across the pages of his word. Genesis chapter 2, the first three verses, it says this. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished... And all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because. He made it holy because on it, God rested from his work that he had done in creation. Did you see that? God rested from his work. On the seventh day, and he said, this seventh day, I'm going to make it holy. And when something's holy, it means it's set apart. It means it's consecrated. It means it cannot be touched. 
It cannot be added to. It can't be taken away from. It's holy. And he said, because of that, I'm going to make it holy because I rested on that day. In other words, there is something about God's rest when he has completed his work that cannot be touched. And what we find in creation is that God made a perfect world. And then he created Adam and Eve, and he didn't say, you're going to create more stuff. He said, what I've created is perfect. It doesn't need adding to, but it needs cultivating. Everything is there in seed form. And all you need to do is tend and care for it and cultivate it, and it will grow. But it's perfect. Of course, what did Adam and Eve do? They chose instead independence from God and said, well, we're just going to do our own thing. That's the lie that they believe from Satan. So we can be like you. We'll go our own path. And God said, that's fine. You go your own path, but you won't do it with my perfect creation. Instead, you'll do your own work. And your own work will be toil and strife. It'll always be a struggle for you because I've made you to cultivate the perfect work that I've created. So you go and do your own thing. That's fine. It'll always end in disaster. And just a cursory look at the history of mankind tells you that that's always the case, isn't it? That's the ever-repeating pattern is it always ends in tears and a lot more because man tries to do his own work. And God is still saying, come back into my rest. My work is finished and complete. Come back into it. And that's why the writer to the Hebrews is sending us to Genesis to say, look, God rested on that day. He set apart that day. And it's perfect. God's perfect work. So God is saying, come and join me in my rest. Give up your work. Come and join me in mine. It's finished. It's complete. cannot be added to, but it can be enjoyed. Do you know what? In the... In the creation narrative in Genesis, we find a parallel in the New Testament. In the Gospel of John, it talks in very similar language about God speaking and the Word and about God calling into being a new creation because that's what God was doing when he sent Jesus in the form, the incarnated Son. And there's a parallel all the way through and the Son was there to bring us back to the original point of rest. And eventually, when the Son has done everything he needs to to bring us back from the disaster that we had made of everything, what did he say? It's finished. It's finished. It's complete. Nothing can be added to it now. And we cannot add to the work of Christ. We cannot add to what he's done. It's perfect. So Christ has a rest, just like his Father has a rest. And when you and I were called into the kingdom of God, we were called into that rest, to dwell in that place. So to find contentment in the present, the key to it is this, to rest on the finished work of Christ in your life. The problem is, is that we stop doing that from time to time, don't we? We've all done that. If you rely on anything other than Christ, 100%, the Bible calls that flesh. If you start to rely on Christ, anything other than him, it's flesh. And that's not what God wants for us. He wants us to have our total trust and reliance upon Jesus, moment by moment. Did you know that your salvation is moment by moment? You know when we talk about getting saved? I got saved two years ago. I got saved five years ago. Guess what? I got saved today. Because it's he who keeps on believing in the Son until the end will be saved. In other words, your salvation is your moment-by-moment trust in him. 
And that's why the writer to the Hebrews is saying, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart, but come into his rest. Rest upon him moment by moment. It's so easy to slip out of that. And the problem is sometimes we don't realize we've done it. It's like a problem we don't see until the symptoms start to appear. The symptoms can be simple things. If you're feeling you're struggling to find God's approval, you're not in the rest of God. If you find you're getting impatient with yourself, guess what? You're not in God's rest. If you're getting impatient with other people, it's the same thing. You're not happy with yourself, so you won't be happy with anyone else. If you find that you're struggling to spend time and sitting at the feet of God, sitting at the feet of the Lord, then you're not in God's rest. If you find yourself striving to busy yourself with things in your life, hoping that that will keep you in the place where God is pleased with you, you're not living in the rest of God. If you find when you're trying to worship him that God is always afar off and that you're the problem, you're not in the rest of God. To rest upon the complete and finished work of Christ, we have to have a revelation that there is nothing you can do, nothing you can do to earn his approval. The problem is is that Christians start to confuse the shaping of their character with the saving of their souls. We start to approach God on the basis of what our character looks like. That's got nothing to do with it. You can't stand before the throne because of your character. You can only stand before the throne because of the blood of the Lamb of God. And we have to have that constant revelation so that whether we're living in a time of success or failure, whether we feel we've pleased him or we've grieved him, even in that place where we know we've grieved him, that we can come right into the throne room and say, I'm here with my head held high, not because of anything I've done, but because despite the fact I grieved you, your blood is still covering me. Your blood is still making me worthy. And that's why the scripture says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You cannot be condemned if you're covered in the blood of Christ. Now, we have to avail ourselves of that. We, We can't just do whatever we want to do, and Paul makes that clear in the scriptures. But that's not the basis on which we approach him. And that's the only way we can find God's rest in the present moment. The third thing is this. Finding God's promised rest means hope for the future. God's rest, it doesn't just affect how we feel about our past. It doesn't just affect how we live day to day in the moment. But it has a massive effect on how we feel about the future and how we deal with future things. So in Hebrews 3, in verse 12, we read these few words. It says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an unbelieving heart. And then it talks about a heart that's hardened. And that's the appeal of this whole passage is, don't let your hearts be hardened. Don't let there be an unbelieving heart. But instead, the exhortation to us is to hold fast, verse 14, if we've come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm. If we hold our original confidence in him firm to the end. And actually in verse 6 it says, just before we read, it says, and we are his house, if indeed we hold our confidence and our boasting 
in our hope, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. We have to hold fast. And the only time, the only way we can hold fast is in the rest of God. Otherwise, we're troubled about the future. And I just want to read um, something that the Lord spoke to us. When Kerry came in February, at the end of our gathering, he brought a prophetic word to the church. And there were lots of things in there, but I believe they were very significant for where we are and where we're going in the future. And this is something that the Lord said. This is part of what the Lord says. Do not throw away your confidence in who you know and have found God to be. For he who you have believed in in the past will come up again for you, proving that in all things he's a winner. I'm going to read that again. This is God's exhortation to us, all of us here. Do not throw away your confidence in who you know and have found God to be. For he who you have believed in in the past will come up again for you, proving that in all things he's a winner. God has spoken to us to say, hold fast to your original confidence in me. Because there are lots of things that we believe for in the future based on what God has said, but we have not yet seen them. And after time, we become weary waiting for those things, don't we? It becomes hard. But when we get weary, we've, we've come out of God's rest. God's intention for you is that the things that you're believing for, the things that he's spoken over your life, that in looking forward to them, you will still know his rest that you won't be troubled, that you won't be weary, that you won't be disappointed or discouraged. Or sometimes when things get deferred, guess what? We start to doubt that we even heard him in the first place. You ever done that? Maybe, maybe it wasn't the Lord. Hold fast. That's what God says today. Hold fast to the word he's spoken to you. Hold fast. Abraham was a fantastic example of this. If you just go across a couple of chapters to Hebrews 6, the writer then goes on to talk about the certainty of God's promise. And in verse 13, he starts talking about when God made a promise to Abraham. And he said, look, he wanted to make the promise as firm and secure as it could be. And there's no greater thing than God himself. So he swore by himself. In other words, my whole um, reputation is on the line. I'll stake everything I am on this promise to you, Abraham. That's the certainty of God's promise that we have, folks. And in that, in verse 13, we're just going to pick it up, and it says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. There's a key for us in there. He patiently waited, but he obtained the promise. He patiently waited, but he obtained the promise. Now, if you know the story of Abraham's life, you'll know that that wasn't the wholesome game of it, was it? There were times when he shifted his focus and things started to go. In other words, Abraham started down his own path. I'll do my own thing, my own work. And then it started to go wrong. So the incident with Hagar and Ishmael was born. And if you know history that followed from that, that was a whole heap of trouble that started right there. Because Abraham shifted his focus off what God had said to him, off the Lord. 
and he started to rely upon natural means. And the temptation can be, when we grow weary, is that we start to shift our focus and say, well, where, where are these things going to come from then? Because God's not coming through. And that's where Abraham was at. Thankfully, God got him back on track. And that's why it says in verse 15, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. Godly hope is patient, but it's not passive. Abraham didn't sit on his backside and wait for Isaac to come along. He actively believed. And every day, he just got on with what God gave him to do that day. He lived in God's rest in the moment. And he looked forward to what God had got for him, but he looked forward now in a state of rest. He'd learned his lesson with what happened before. But his focus was on the Lord. I believe Abraham was sustained by the vision of God that he had. He had a revelation of what it meant to be God's friend. And I believe for us, looking forward and having hope for the future, the key is that your eyes are on the promiser and not the promise. And the trouble is, sometimes we're so focused on what God has said he'll do, we're looking at that, we're looking at that, but we're not looking at him. And the only way you sustain your faith for the future is to keep your eyes on him. You know, it's like when um, I was reading this morning, Peter, when he walked across the water, we never give him enough credit for that. (laughs) The passage passage title in my Bible is Jesus walks on the water. I'm thinking, yeah, okay, he was God. But come on, a man walked on the water. He walked on the water. He started to sink, not because he looked at the water. That was the miracle. It's when he looked at the wind. The wind was the thing coming against him. The wind was the thing that opposed the miracle that he was enjoying. And Jesus said, effectively said to him, look at me, when he reached out to him. You know, it's like when, if you're a parent, there are times when your children panic about things, and you say, look at me. Don't don't worry about that. Look at me. And sometimes God is saying that to us, and we're not listening. We're looking at the promise, saying, it's not happening, it's not happening. And we're looking at the challenge, and God says, look at me. Look into my eyes. Come into the presence. Just look at me. But that's not going to solve the problem. Yes, it is. Because you're the problem. (laughs) You need to come into my presence so I can change you. And that's the whole process I'm taking you through. That's why it's not happening straight away, because you weren't ready. Now, that might sound harsh, but he's our parent. He's our father, and he knows what's best for us. And that's all about accepting the past and accepting that he always has your best intentions, however uncomfortable that may be for you. You either accept that or you walk away. That's the deal with God. There's no negotiation involved here because there can be nothing less than complete success, not a partial success. God's going to bring you through. He's going to make you a winner like he is. But it's quite uncomfortable at times. So God's promised rest will enable us to hold fast. And it creates not just faith, but enduring faith. You know the difference? Faith can be conceptual sometimes. Yes, I've heard that and I believe it. And then something happens to challenge that in your circumstances. And then you believe despite what everything around you is telling you. That's enduring faith. That's tested faith. That's the faith that Abraham had. That's the faith that we have to have. That's the faith that God's people have to have if we're going to bring his kingdom in. 
because there are going to be lots of challenges. And the only way we deal with those challenges, it's in the presence together. We come into the presence, and God says to us, look at me. Look at me. And then faith arises, and enduring faith emerges. If you just look a little bit further down in chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 6, it says this. Verse 19. We have... We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place where Jesus has gone. Jesus has gone ahead of us. And he is our anchor point. You know, often the Bible talks about our hopes are set in eternity. And that we are anchored into eternity. And I think it's a really helpful picture, the, the idea of having an anchor point in the presence of God. And I've got with me a prop. I thought it's been a while since we've had a prop. Richard Jones is normally the king of props. Where have you been for the last year, Rich? I kind of felt we needed another one. So I started to think about what it actually means to have an anchor point. And I need an anchor point. So I've asked Mike, who is bigger than me, so this is going to work. So if you can stand over there, Mike, just wrap, the, wrap it around your wrist like that. So you've got it as a good anchor point. There you go. There you go. Right. So just imagine that Mike is Jesus. Not too hard, I know. (laughs) And he has gone behind the inner curtain. He's the hope. He's the one you're looking at. Now what happens is, there's something between you and him that's holding you onto him. And it's your faith. But when we come into the presence together, we do something really important. We start to say things out loud. We start to sing them. We start to shout them. We start to confess the word of God. And every time we do that, if you imagine each one of those is a knot on that rope, it's a hold. It may be that you're struggling with your past, but God says, the past is past. God says, that which I've begun in you, I will complete in you. And you pull yourself forward slightly. It may be that you're struggling with your present and you say, I was never really meant to be here because of the things I've done in my life. And God says, there's no condemnation for you because of my blood it may be that you struggle with your future and you say the things that God's done for other people I don't think he's going to do for me and God says to you I'm going to give you a hope and a future to bless you and prosper you and you pull yourself forward and every time you make a confession what you're doing is you're pulling yourself further and further and closer into the presence to Jesus You see the importance of it. He's your anchor point. And when we come together, these knots, knots of confession, they're really important. They pull you closer to him. They pull us closer to him. This is why the writer to the Hebrew says, exhort one another. Exhort one another. Tell each other. 
the promises of God. And they pull us closer to him. God's promise rest is about acceptance of the past. It requires a sacrifice. It really does to lay down thoughts and feelings you have about the past. But without that, you cannot move on. Contentment in the present, it relies, it, it requires a total reliance upon him that you stop in any way relying upon your own efforts to please God. There is nothing you can do to please him or make him not love you any less than he does right now or ever did. And a hope for the future requires us to have an enduring patience. And do you know what? All three of them are interlinked because you have to be able to accept the past. You have to be able to accept that God is who he says he is, that he had your best intentions to be able to live in God's rest in the present and rest upon his finished work. And out of that place of rest in the present is how you look to the future, not with a troubled heart, not with a doubting heart, not worrying about whether God's going to come through for you or not, but you look forward and say, he's my God and he won't let me down. Father, I just want to thank you. Lord, I want to thank you for everything you've done for us, Lord. I thank you, Lord, that we have this great privilege of coming into your presence, of standing before your throne. Lord, we want to be those people who live in your rest, for you have promised it to us. And Lord, we know there are many things that would seek to hold us back from that, would seek to crowd in upon us, Lord. But Lord, you want us sitting at your feet. You want us to have an unobstructed view. And so, Lord, I pray, where there are things that are still lingering, whether they're in the past for us, Lord, whether they are about how we feel about ourselves and our lives right now, Lord, I pray that we will find your rest. I pray, Lord, that every time we come together in your presence, you would reveal new things to us, Lord. You would show us, Lord, that we have nothing to fear. Lord, that we need only strive to stay in that place of rest, to stay at your feet, looking upon you, Lord. And Lord, I pray that every time we do that, Lord, we will go from this place, Lord, full of your spirit, full of hope and full of trust in you, Lord, that all those things that you've spoken over us, Lord, you will bring them to pass, for you are always faithful. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. There's so much going on at Living Rock Church and we'd love for you to be involved. Search for us online and get information about upcoming events and more great teaching. Visit www.livingrock.church or search for us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram.